And we're going to look at um, 3 John, verse 11 and 12. And the message is entitled, We Need Godly Wise Examples. In um, the recent pastor's conference at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, the one we had yearly with Pastor Chuck and Marietta, it was held at Costa Mesa. And the message was that if um, you're over 50, you're a dinosaur. And you'll only attract old people like you. Therefore, you should uh, hand over your church to a younger pastor because you're not cool. Too rigid, not hip, behind in technology, and not ecumenical enough. Yet, the history of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, through the lay pastor Chuck Smith, contradicts this new philosophy. He was in his mid-40s, I believe, maybe early 40s, bald. Not cool when God used him to bring about the Jesus movement. They're declaring the same message as the world. Marginalizing the old and wise and exalting the young, inexperienced and unwise. Cool and trendy. The problem is that the message came from those who are over 50 and 60 themselves. But of course, because of the leaders, they're the exception. The church today, more than ever, is in great need of men and women who have walked with God for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Faithfully. To be an example, to be a pillar pray to impart to others the example, the teaching, the wisdom. It seems that the church is going the same way of the world. Discard the old, bring in the new. John has just commended the faithful service of Diotrephes towards the missionaries that came to the church. So John now exhorts Gaius to follow faithful examples here in verses 11 and 12. Let me read. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness, and you know, that our testimony is true. So John's exhortation to Gaius to follow faithful examples is revealed by three things. First here, we have the exhortation to follow the right example, the beginning of 11. Second, you have the indication of being the right example, the last half of 11. And thirdly, you have the application of one who was the right example in verse 12. The exhortation, the indication, and the application. The exhortation to follow the right example comes first 
Notice the person being addressed as Gaius, beloved. The first time John used the term was indicated that Gaius was loved dearly by the family of God in verse 1. Beloved means one who is esteemed very dear, worthy of love from the root word agape, God's divine love. You see, you, you can love someone and they can love you deeply in God's love. And it has to do with their best interest in mind for you regarding eternity and spiritual things. God never asks us to love each other emotionally because that's fickle. Some people are so evil that if I was commanded to, to love them compatible in emotion with phileo love, I'd have a difficult time. Because that's a natural love that is fickle. It's based on looks, emotions. But agape love is God's love. The people of God loved him dearly. Now the second time John uses the term was to um, indicate that John the Beloved personally loved Gaius in verse 2, the the first part of verse 2. John includes himself among the many that love Gaius going from the general to the specific by the personal pronoun I. So all love Gaius and Paul says, and I love him too. The Apostle John, I'm sorry, John, not Paul, loved him dearly. Again, they had the kindred spirit of being children of God. Now, the third time John uses the word was like the second, as endearment. And the term will appear a fourth and last time in verse 11 as a term of endearment. And that's the way he uses it. Then notice the personal command to Gaius is twofold. Do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The first part of the command is in the negative. Do not imitate what is evil. John exhorts Gaius by commanding him to not duplicate the example of Diotrephes being unloving inhospitable to the missionaries. This does not mean or imply that Gaius was being or beginning to fail to be a good example, but simply was being encouraged to continue to be one. The tense is the present, for Gaius has already been commanded by John of being faithful. It would be a contradiction to verse 4 and 6 if he was failing. Too much sometimes is read into text from the English without looking at the tense in the Greek. Uh, This is done with Timothy. That Timothy was waning and he was being cowardly. Not so. It's like you having your son and he's doing a good job on the job. And you say, keep it up. It doesn't mean that he's not doing a good job. It affirms that he's doing a good job and he should keep on doing what he's doing. And that's what it means. This is the first and only command in the letter, by the way. The only one. The word for imitate means to follow after one's example. It appears 
three other times in the New Testament. 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 and 9 and Hebrews 13, 7. The root word is mimos. We get our word mimic from it. When you mimic someone, you do exactly like him. Usually we identify with mockery. (laughs) To poke fun. You're trying to be exactly like them. That's the word. John identifies the example of Diotrephes as evil notice. Kakos is the word. Describes something of a bad nature. Spiritually and morally. What ought not to be having no benefit. You see, he loved to have the preeminence among them. And did not receive John or the brethren. Verse 9 says. Now this guy's a pastor. This guy's in the church. Now today people get upset. And today pastors even say, you shouldn't be calling on anything. Oh, be quiet. Are you kidding me? What do you do with the Old Testament? What do you do with Jesus? What do you do with Paul? When you point people out, it's because they've been confronted and warned already. And they refuse to repent and they refuse to change. And therefore, their conduct will affect the people of God. So therefore, you warn the people of God. You're hoping by approaching and confronting them, Matthew 18, that they will turn and it's done. But when they don't, then you have to point them out for the protection of the people of God. Simple. This evil is the product of man's sinful nature, as you know, being troublesome, injurious, and pernicious. He spoke against John and the missionaries with malicious words, verse 10 says. The word again, cackles, appears only this time in the epistle here. And one other time in the gospel of John, chapter 18, verse 23 Now notice the second part of the command is in the positive. But what is good? The word but is a contrasting conjunction. As you know, this is typical of John. He contrasts light and darkness, truth and error, good and evil throughout his writings. John is exhorting Gaius again by commanding them to duplicate. The example of such men as Diotrephes, which he will mention in the next verse, even though he is an example already. John again identifies the example as good, agathos, describing the good that is constitutional in nature, found only this time in the epistle. That which is good, that which is beneficial, that which is going to be good for someone else. But you can't give what you don't have. That which is the product of divine nature imparted to the individual at the new birth. Every Christian receives a new nature, a new life, a new heart, a new mind. The responsibility is to put it on, to yield to it, to use it. John uses it in his gospel for the resurrection and 
John 5, 28 and 29. Listen to what he says. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good, that's the word, to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. John 5, 28 and 29. Noah is a good example of um, 120 years of following obedience to the Lord and patience when he had not yet ever seen rain. A good example. He walked by faith. He believed the Lord. And he just took one day at a time in obedience to God. Everybody mocked him. Everybody ridiculed him. But he remained stable and consistent. How do people see you? How do they refer to you? Are you seen as a beloved person? Value to the church due to your commitment and your service? Does your family see you in the same light? Now, don't get me wrong. This doesn't mean that people won't think evil of you or speak evil of you. Especially if you're an example as a Christian, people will. But as Peter says, my only responsibility is that when people speak evil of me, to live in such a way to prove them wrong. Sometimes it's not even worth confronting it. <laughs> You've got to have the good sense of things that need to be confronted and those that just, you've been insulted by better people. Just walk away. No big deal. But the important commentary is by those who know you, who spend time with you. Not mere casual acquaintance. And they've seen you through the years, the things that God's taking you through. They've seen you through the years, through thick and thin, your obedience to God. First Peter 4, 14-16 says, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. He's talking to Christians. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. What is being pushed today is progressive and cutting-edge thinking, to think positive and rejecting Anything negative, buying into the political correct propaganda, and this includes even the church. Yet the scriptures are full of negative commands given to bring about good and positive results in the life of the person. The very first thing God told Adam was, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you shall surely die. The negative command was for protection 
for their spiritual well-being, for their fellowship with God. The negative command would bring about a positive result if it was followed. And people are so wise today, even in Christian communities, they lean so much to psychology and all sociology and all this progressive thinking. And say they don't believe in thinking bad energy, that's bad energy and everything. And they mix new age with their backwards education. And, and they think they're so wise. There's only one problem. Their lives don't show it. Robin Williams. When he first came out on Mork and Mindy in the 70s. I said when he first came out, this guy is the type of guy who will get lost in himself like Jonathan Winters and he'll jump out of a window one day. Most comedians are not very happy, but they make everybody laugh. A sad life. All the money, all the possessions. What is the profit? Absolutely nothing. Tragic. God went on to tell Adam, the Lord said, Do not, um, it is not good for man that he should be alone. I will make a, a, him a helper comparable to him. The negative declaration, it's not good to be alone, gave him a positive result, made him a woman, made him very happy. <laughs> Nine of the Ten Commandments are in the negative. Do you know that? The Sabbath's the only exception. You're going to blame God of being negative? <laughs> so much for the psychologist. For every negative thing, give them two positives. Be quiet. But people are quacking ducks and they're just as messy. Through the scriptures, there exists the tension of negative and positive commands together. Both are necessary. Matthew 6.33 says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses life shall preserve it. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And on and on and on. Negative, positive. The value and importance of following good godly examples permeates the scriptures, as you know. Paul says, for through, though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. 1 Corinthians 4, 15 through 16. That's quite a statement. Imitate me because I also imitate Christ, he says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1. 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 through 9 says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat any man's bread free of charge, but work with our own labor and toil night and day, that we might not be burdened to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. Always leading by example. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God <clears throat> to you, 
whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. Hebrews 13.7 Follow their faith, in other words, their lifestyle according to godliness, and see the result. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. He's talking to shepherds, pastors. Not by compulsion, but willingly. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples of the flock. The problem today in the church is that these guys who are supposed to be servants have become lords. The pastor is supposed to be the biggest example. The leaders. Where are they today? The exhortation to follow. The right example is for the benefit of others. You might think of your children, of others. They're watching. They're listening. They're smart. Notice, secondly, the indication of being the right example comes second. The Apostle John, in verse 11 here, declared to Gaius how one knows who is of God. He who does good is of God. The person doing good is related to God. Again, the word good here means to do something to benefit someone like receiving and providing for the missionaries that he's mentioned. You're, you don't have ulterior motives. You have good motives. You, you're thinking of the person, not yourself. To do something well to profit, preparing them to go preach the gospel for others to be saved. Jesus used it. It is lawful. Uh, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath day? Mark 3, 4. Only one answer, yes. Same word. What profit is it if you do good to those who do good to you? Luke 6.33. Republicans even do this. A non-believer does this. The good that John is talking about is not mere moral, ethical, or social goodness. For good moral pagans do good things and they don't know God. One of the biggest characteristics of the emergent church is to, to make people comfortable, to just help them in this world and give them a sense of community. The same proclamation that the Clintons gave it takes a village to raise a child. No different. We're here. To be a vessel of Christ to reach people for Christ. God will build his church. God will give you fellowship within the church. God will bring your friends. God will direct and guide you. But the church is not to organize little groups and to just hook up with everybody and to make all make sure you guys have all the different. That's not what the church is about. That's a Western eyes Disneyland church. <laughs> Even the worst of sinners do some good things, and they don't know God. The good that John is talking about is that which is 
the product of being born again. This is the person who knows God. The one transformed by repentance as they've seen themselves as sinners. As Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, 3 through 5. The one manifesting evidence of the new divine nature, the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of that believer, as 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4 says. Where you are very conscious that you know that from day to day as you deal with your wife, your husband, your children, people around you, the workforce, everything else, that things will happen and, and though you have your old sin nature and you would want to respond, it's checked by the Spirit of God and you call upon the Lord and He gives you the wisdom, gives you the strength and you let your light shine. You are the first to know whether God's working in your life and you're yielding to Him or not. No one's perfect. No one. But we're not what we used to be. <laughs> we're under construction. We're moving forwards. The Apostle John also declared to Gaius how one knows who's not of God. But he who does evil has not seen God. The person who does evil has the wrong perception of God. The contrast again cannot be missed. The word but, the contrast in conjunction, the contrast is of good and evil. The difference is as day and night. It can't be missed. The phrase does evil means to do harm or wrong. This assumes and implies that there is a standard to measure what is right and wrong, good and evil. If you're going to call something good, then there must be a measure. There must be a standard. If you're going to call something evil, then equally there's a standard. Now, in today's society, it's an amoral society. It's relativism, so there's no judgments made. Because you might think what you do is good, and I might say that's evil. So I have no right to judge you. That's really existentialism. Because no one can experience the same thing, and no one can experience truth for anybody else. You must experience it for yourself. Therefore, what you experience becomes truth to you according to your own understanding and relativism. And therefore, it's all subjective. There's no absolute standard. Wow. Try balancing your checkbook by those standards. Or drive home by those standards. Or when you want to make your payment, your mortgage payment, and call the bank say, Well, today I think this $1,000 is really just one. See, they go along with your subjectivism. Good and evil, truth and error, then, is objective, not subjective, as people are taught today in school. Value clarification, situational ethics. The evil that John is talking about is not a failure due to human weakness, but one who is born again. Against the one who isn't. So the one who isn't has no potential to 
be consistent in doing good, that which is good that comes from God according to his standards. All men have feet of clay. David called the man after God's own heart, failed miserably with Bathsheba, committing adultery with her, got her pregnant, and killed her husband. Miserably. And even though David was forgiven, I wouldn't want to be David after Bathsheba. So God is gracious, but um, the consequences of our sins don't go away sometimes, do they? The believer has a lawyer for the defense in 1 John 2, 1, so I can go before him and agree in my failure and articulate it to him, and he forgives me and he brings me into fellowship again. We are saved by grace. We are abiding in grace. And we will be glorified by grace. The evil that John is talking about is that which is produced by man's sinful nature. These are the individuals who have not seen God. The phrase not seeing God is being used synonymously with not being born again. The perception of God is warped. There are those who have not yet seen their need of God to depend upon Him to not live a life of sin and evil. They still feel they're good enough. Pastor Mark Driscoll of Mars Hills Church that I warn you again all, all the time against. It was just dismissed as pastor this month for all his shenanigans, embezzlement and different things and many other things. Finally, they want to distance themselves from him. One by one, these guys will fall because they don't believe you can learn any objective truth from the word. They don't study the word. It's just dialogue, converse. It cuts from the pulpit. They have beer bashes with their elders. Great. Hmm. And Greg Laurie wants to be associated with Mark Driscoll. Wow. Amazing. There's such a confusion today as to who is of God and a true Christian. Some think they're Christians just because they're merely Americans. <laughs> Others think they know God because they, um, they seek some spiritual belief. Common phrase by actors and movie stars and everything is, I'm, I'm a spiritual person. That's the new jargon. They could be worshiping Satan. They, they, I'm a spiritual person. They're worshiping demons. Familiar spirits. New age. Walking labyrinths. Calling themselves Christians. Contemplative prayer. Tapping into demons. Promoted by the Christian community, Christian colleges, universities. Wow. 
Still others think they're Christians just because they go to church. The standard, ladies and gentlemen, is the truth of the Bible, not religious dogmas. Luke 3, 8 through 14 says, Therefore, bear fruit worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree which does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics... Let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed to you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. These requests are impossible. Unless you're born again. Jesus was telling them you must be born again. He's preaching the gospel to them. There are people throughout our society who profess to know God, but they do evil. Madonna, with all her perverse lifestyle, attempting to present herself as one with God through her religion of Kabbalah. Jewish New Age. Praying before performances. Wow. What a mixed signal. Now she writes children's book. Now that she's had a daughter. How do you put the two together? The emerging church people and pastors with their unbiblical lifestyles and teachings. How do they put the two together? How do people tolerate it? Because they're not putting and judging it to the plumb like the Word of God. They're ignoring the Word of God. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Colossians 4, 6 says. There are Christians as well as pastors who get caught up in sin. And I'm not talking about just immoral or this and that, but sin in terms of their conduct like this here, that they go after people, they damage people, they, they want to control people, they, 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 they do bad things, stuff that I used to do in the world. When I hear and see these guys, I go, you know, that's what I used to do when I was an unbeliever. And yet, they have no fear of God and they do it inside the church. Wow. Matthew 23, 14 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. As these pastors lay it thick on people and they don't pick up one little thing with their little finger like the Pharisees. As they're so enamored with themselves. God help us. 
the indication of being the right example of good is that a person is of God. You're abiding in Christ. You're growing in the Word of God. You're being a doer of it. You are being the church, not just going to church. Notice thirdly in verse 12, the application of one who was the right example. John first pointed out to Gaius that many of the brethren affirmed that Diotrephes had followed such an example, being an example. It says Demetrius has a good testimony from all. Demetrius' life was confirmed by the witness of all the brethren at Ephesus. He probably was a Gentile convert to Christianity. His name Demetrius means belonging to Demeter, or Demetrius was the goddess of our agriculture and rural life. The name appears three times. The other two are in Acts, the silversmith of the goddess Diana, who opposed Paul at Ephesus in Acts 19, 24, and 38. So Demetrius in our text is not the same one in Acts, though. They're two different individuals. Now, notice Demetrius had chosen to mimic what was good. Therefore, he had a good testimony. The phrase good testimony is one word in the Greek, martyrio, which means to be a witness. We get our word martyr from it. The tense is the perfect tense, indicating his perpetuation from the past to the present. Faithful, consistent. It appears four times in the epistle in various forms. Verse 3, 6, 2 times, and then in verse 12. He had a con- and continued to affirm by his lifestyle what he had heard and been taught about the gospel. And time flies. I think of my own life. 41 years. Where did they go? I think of how God saved us at first and what he did and where we came from and, and how gracious he was and the number of people and the fellowships and the Bible studies and the outreaches and all that God has done. And you think about 41 years of all. And it's amazing. And God just does it. But you see your life going forward. You see your life being consistent. And as you see that and you look back, you see other as you're walking with God, you see people dropping off. You see people messing their life up. As you look back, you remember those people. Some of them you see them come back, some you don't. But 41 years, even though it's so fast, it's a long time. This word in its various forms in the New Testament is a key word is used for a martyr and a witness of the gospel. Now notice John pointed out to Gaius next that the gospel also affirmed that Demetrius had followed a good example and from the truth itself. 
Demetrius' life was confirmed by the truth of the word of God. The word of the gospel saved him and transformed him. The gospel was in him. He walked in truth of the gospel and received the missionaries, itinerant teachers. The word truth has been interpreted different by men. It's the word Elysia. We have seen uh, that it means genuinely or reality. The tense is the perfect tense indicating his reputation from the past. It's used for truth of the gospel in all six appearances here in the letter. And some have interpreted the truth itself to indicate Jesus himself, others to the Holy Spirit, but it's foreign to the text. The only one that makes any real sense is the context of the Word of God. The Word of God. Objective truth. That's why it's so important that you get out a Bible, you open it up, you read it. I thank God there's a Bible reading and I, I, I put it on and I go walk. And I go through a book or half a book or whatever it is. And I just hear the guy reading. It's good. But I need to get my, my hands on paper. I need to see this thing. I need to know where it's at. I need to scar up my Bible. I need to mark it up. I need to say yes, no, I, little notes, everything. It's been said that a Bible that is usually falling apart belongs to someone who isn't. And someone who is falling apart usually belongs to a Bible that isn't. Sin will keep you from this book, and this book will keep you from sin. There's just that very clear relationship. Now notice John pointed out a third witness to Gaius. John and the brethren with him affirmed that Demetrius had followed a good example And we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. Demetrius was being commended by John personally as a witness to his life. We, in the case, the missionaries present with John, they individually stood behind Demetrius. They collectively stood behind him also. And the tense is the present tense. And the word testimony, again, there, martyrium. Uh, he who bears information, verifies correctly. A witness at a scene, whether it be an accident or a crime scene, he's a witness. He, he, he bears witness of what he saw, what, what he, he uh, has in his possession. He is seen as one who had been hospitable to the missionaries one who was worthy of receiving hospitality himself. He most likely was the bearer of the letter. Now notice John the Beloved called for the personal acknowledgement of Gaius regarding the validity and reliability of his word. The phrase, you know, indicates Gaius personally acquainted with the elder John and the brethren. You know. The quality of their words are said to be true, literally truthful and dependable. There is nothing that is of a greater comfort than to know that you deal with a person who you can trust wholeheartedly 
And if they tell you something, it's absolutely true. You don't even say, say what? Are you sure about that? Life is so much easier. But people that are deceptive bring not only trouble to themselves, but to everybody around them. They speak out of both sides of their mouth. And they know that they're lying when they're looking at you. This is the only time it appears in the epistle. John 21, 24, John says, This is the disciple who testified of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. The word is inspired. This is God's word. These are not exaggerations. They're not embellishments. They're not lies. But absolute truth about what's being stated or recorded. Such men are rare in the church. Paul put it this way. Listen to Philippians 2, 20 through 24. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. He's talking about Timothy. Stop and think of all the names that, people, that Paul has, all his helpers. And he says, I have no one like Timothy. Like-minded towards the people of God. Wow. The witness of the church <clears throat> is a valid and important thing for the life of the believer. The consistent witness of a person in the church, wherever they may go, is of great value both to the church and the person. The witness of the church at times can be contradicted by the individual who lives a life of duplicity. They're one thing here, they're another thing at home. Again, we're not talking about missing the mark. We all do that, okay? We're talking about being hypocritical. One thing here, something else somewhere else. Acts one eight says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. Not for me, but to me. God is the first one that sees it. What do I care what people see? I should be more concerned what God sees. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, Acts 1.8. The witness of the gospel in a person's life is of the greatest importance. That they are growing in the knowledge of the gospel. That's what we do on Sunday morning, four times. That's what we do on Tuesday for the men and the women and the kids. That's what we do on Thursday, midweek study. On Friday, they go out witnessing in the street. Sometimes Saturday. 
we focus on teaching the word of God so that you can feed yourself and you can be strong in the Lord, growing. But not only growing, but developing spiritually, maturing spiritually. So you're growing, developing, and maturing on every level, fully fit for the journey as you walk with Jesus. Second Peter 1, 5 through 11 puts it this way, but also for this very reason, give all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, knowledge self-control, self-control perseverance, perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness agape love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, if these things happen automatically, he wouldn't have to say it. If there was no possibility of that not having uh, or taking place, he wouldn't have to say it. So there is that human responsibility to yield, to grow, to abide, to deny yourself. To pick up that cross every day. To not be permissive with yourself. But to hold yourself accountable to God. If you don't hold yourself accountable, nobody else will. The witness of individuals to a person's godliness is commendable. Where two walk through life together and they see the struggles, the commitment, the difficulties. There's a young man that I know very well and he's going through some very difficult times. And the things that he's going through, I'm just in awe. Because to tell you the truth, I don't think I could do it. I'm just in awe of him. How incredible example he is and how he can put up with the things that he does. I'm amazed. When a person can vouch for an individual as a matter of mature commitment by abiding in Christ and the Word, when they hear something, they go, no, 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 you've got it wrong. Because they know the person. I don't know who told you that. That's absolutely wrong. That's not true. <laughs> First John 2.28 says, And now the little children abide in him. And when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit, first John four thirteen. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. 
he who abides in the doctrine of Christ as both the Father and the Son. It presupposes that you cannot abide in the doctrine of Christ. If that's not a potential, why say that? Why encourage Christians to obey? If it happens automatically. If there's no possibility. The application of one who was the right example was Demetrius. (laughs) In spite of that difficult situation, he was a good example. And so John exhorted Gaius to follow faithful examples revealed here by the exhortation to follow the right example was for the benefit of others. Always others. Jesus first, then others. Me last. The indication of being the right example of good was that a person is of God. It's because they're yielding to God. And the application of one who was the right example was Demetrius. (laughs) He commends him. Even as you would commend your son or your daughter when you've seen them go through some difficult things in school or with their friends and they make that stand and they call upon the Lord and they know you're praying for them and, and you see them just grow and mature and just come out stronger and you just you just commend them. You just thank God for them. That's the same in the church, no different. It's great. And so, we need godly, wise um, examples. Uh, we don't need to discard them away as a new philosophy. <laughs> no way. Lord, thank you for your love and goodness. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your um, patience with us, Lord, and your grace to enable us and equip us. We thank you for your faithfulness through the many years in the fellowship here through the lives of the saints, Lord. And we pray that you would continue to have your way with us as we yield, as we continue to proclaim your word, and just continue to study, Lord. Help us to be doers and not just hearers, that we may glorify you, Lord. As you're praying... If you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here tonight to be saved, to repent of your sins. You don't have to be a horrible sinner to need salvation. You just need to be born into this world. You have a sin nature. You love yourself more than anyone else. And... Your lifestyle, whatever it may be, is to your own glory. And yet the harder you try to please yourself or anybody else, there's greater emptiness. God has put that void there purposely. It can only be filled by Jesus Christ. Maybe you're over the Internet. If you, by the grace of God, as we've been teaching the Word, see yourself as a sinner in need of forgiveness and salvation, then that's the grace of God. That's the work of the Spirit of God convicting you. Now it's up to you 
Balls in your court. You can agree with him, but if that's all you do and you don't take a step of faith and ask him to come into your life and save you, then you just remain lost. You are saved by grace through faith as he has made you understand your need of salvation. That's God's grace. It's a prayer of repentance. Right where you sit, you can say this prayer. This is your prayer to him, not to us. And he will cleanse you, forgive you, and make you a child of God by faith. This is your prayer to him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.